0: Uh, I've had many failures in my life. Have you? Some of them are pretty small and inconsequential. Some of them are pretty large and embarrassing. And I want to spend some time today talking about failures. And this is part of a series we're going to do this month of December called God With Us. We're playing off of our year-long theme called With, and we're taking the name given to Jesus, Emmanuel, God With Us. We're going to walk through these stories in the first few chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Because these are not ideal stories. This isn't the kind of story you would write if you were making up the beginnings of the Savior of the world. And they're stories filled with failure and disappointment. They're stories just about ordinary people, nothing special about them. And they are stories of celebration. And so what we'll do for these next few weeks is talk about how God is with us in all of those circumstances starting with God with us in failure so Luke begins his gospel reminding us that all of this happens during the time of Herod and this is not just a nice little historical placement to help us see where we are on the timeline this reminds us that the story of Jesus starts amid great peril and danger Herod was a tyrant Herod came to power by murdering members of his family. So when we read about his order to murder people later, that wasn't new for him. Everything that we read happens with a great threat from the outside, actually from the inside. Herod, uh, the king of the Jews, he is a tyrant. And he's no no great leader of his people. So, So Luke places the story in that time. And he begins his gospel story... In this way, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. So the story starts out by telling us some details about these people, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They are... Kind of important people They're from important families Upstanding families they've, they've got the last names that can get you in the right door The right kind of connections Pillars of their community And Luke tells us that they are righteous And blameless And obedient But all is not well in their world Because in the next verse Luke tells us That they were childless Because Elizabeth was not able to conceive And they were both Very old not just old very old we'll leave that to others to define what exactly that might the cutoff for there might be but we know that their that their inability to have children is not one of their fault you know sometimes we look at this and say well whose fault is that what moral failure has happened we just read that they were righteous and blameless nobody's at fault for this but at this point in their life They've decided, obviously, that the ship has sailed on any chance of having children. They're very old, and I imagine them in their younger years dealing with the disappointment of watching all of their friends beginning to have children, and they could not. And I know that they grieved that, and may even have continued to grieve that even into their old age, but at some point they must have realized that children were not going to be part of their lives and had to grapple with a new reality. And we know from the time that Elizabeth would have been held responsible by society for their inability to have children. The blame would have rested entirely on the woman. It's not quite that way now, but there are still some vestiges of that too, and how we determine uh, who's at fault for those kinds of things. So their life has not turned out the way they had hoped, but they have decided on a different path. So Luke continues by giving us the exact story that happens in their old age. Verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside." So what we know about Zachariah and Elizabeth, they live out in the hill country and he's going to commute in for two one week periods a year and stay at the temple lodgings to be on call, on duty for priestly service. And he's one of the divisions, he's in one of the divisions of priests named after Aaron's sons, the original priest. So while he's there for one of his times on duty, Luke tells us ...that he gets chosen by lot, so kind of rolling the dice... ...and he is going to go and render special service in the most holy place by burning incense. This is how things worked for priests when they were on duty. Everything right now, pretty standard. But what happens with Zechariah when he goes inside is anything but standard... Because Luke continues the story by telling us about this encounter. So Zechariah goes inside. No one's around. Everyone is on the outskirts of the building praying. He's inside, and he encounters an angel, a messenger. And he's afraid. And so the angel has to say, don't be afraid. And the angel tells him something he would never have expected... The angel tells him that his wife Elizabeth will have a son and they are to call this boy's name John. And because of John, many will rejoice because he will be great in the Lord's sight. And this boy, the angel tells Zechariah, is not going to be any boy. He's going to have some special restrictions because he has special service. So he can't drink alcohol because of his special service. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit before he... Is born. Essentially, the angel shows up and said, Hey, Zechariah, your kid's going to go into ministry too. And that doesn't always go well when people hear that conversation. Put him in finance. Let him be an architect. Let him be a lawyer. Something else. Not this. I know what that's like. But John is going to bring people back to their God, says the angel. He's going to prepare the way for the Lord startling revelation how does Zachariah respond well he responds by a question he says how can I be sure of this I am an old man and my wife is well along in years it's a fair question and concern isn't it Zachariah is basically saying listen I know you're an angel but um, do you know how biology works I don't know if you've noticed, but we're pretty old. Like, We thought about this for a while. It's not going to work out. So how are you telling me this? This doesn't make any sense. It's an understandable question, but it's not the right response, is it? Because the angel says to him, I'm Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to you to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now... You will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, that means when John is born, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. That was a mistake, and the mistake is compounded because now Zechariah ...has to go and live with this... ...even with people who are on the outskirts of the building. Luke tells us that the people, meanwhile, were waiting for Zechariah... ...and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple... ...for he kept making signs to them... ...but remained unable to speak. This is not just a private failure... ...where just the angel knows about it. Now Zechariah has to go outside... All these people who are going, like, where's this guy been? He's taken a while. How long does it take to burn incense, really? Is he okay? What's he up to in there? So now there's this embarrassing moment where he has to go and essentially play charades to convince people he has seen an angel. And I just imagine how they responded to that. And I just imagine that not everyone immediately understood it and accepted it. Oh, he said he's seen an angel, huh? He doesn't seem like he's in his right mind. His private failure became pretty public as everybody began to talk about the priest and his encounter with the angel. And this part of the story ends with uh, them returning home. Verse 23, when he was finished with his temple duty, they go home, and Elizabeth, after five months, remains in seclusion. And she says this, The Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. She has this response of thankfulness, of relief almost, that God has taken away her disgrace. But what about Zachariah's disgrace? He's still in the middle of embarrassment, he still can't speak. This guy has failed on numerous levels, and at this moment, he's still living with it. Can we talk about some of his failures for a moment? I mean, first, here's a, here is a priest who doesn't seem to know Scripture. I mean, Zechariah, don't you know the story of Abraham and Sarah? Don't you know the story Rachel don't you know haven't you read the story of Elkanah and Hannah don't you know that sometimes an angel shows up to people who can't have children and tells them they're going to have children didn't you see the flannel graphs in Sabbath school didn't you see the PowerPoints Zachariah you don't know your scripture this is how God works here's a priest who doesn't seem to know scripture here's a leader ...who seems to be afraid. He's not just a random person, he's a priest. And yet when an angel shows up, you would think... ...well, of all people, a priest should be able to recognize an angel. But he's afraid. And the angel has to calm him down. And then here's this leader of the people... ...who can't even go and speak to them on behalf of God. That's his job as a priest. The leader who's afraid. And here's a person who's in a high-standing family with an important last name, Pillars of the Community, who's now embarrassed himself. He has to go outside and make all these crazy hand signals to try to convince them of what's happened. Don't you know, after the people witnessed that, don't you know they were on Facebook making little cryptic posts about him? Don't you know they were in their private Snap groups talking about this priest who'd done this? Don't you know that when they left services, they went out to lunch and gossiped about him? We know how this works. It's a disgrace. He is embarrassed and everyone is talking about it. And aren't we glad then that that's not how the story of Zachariah ends. So the time comes later on and John is born and he is to be named. So everyone is celebrated, they've come for this joyous occasion. And they're trying to figure out what to name the child. And people say, well, should it be Zachariah?" That's a common practice. You name a baby boy after his father or grandfather. And somehow Elizabeth knows. She speaks up first and says, no, his name is to be John. So even though Zechariah can't talk, he has communicated to her. And the people don't take the woman's word for it. We won't get started on that. And so they look at the father and they say, well, no, is, this tr- is she right about this? And he's making these signs and he's saying his name is John. And in his act of obedience, he doesn't say his name should be John or is to be John. As far as Zachariah is concerned, he is naming the reality that's already been decided. His name is John. And so despite his public failures, here is a moment of important obedience where Zachariah demonstrates that he's understood. And when the time comes, he says his name is John. And so immediately, he can speak again. And what happens? Verse 65, all the neighbors were filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about these things. See, they'd been talking about his failure. They'd been talking about the weirdness of his encounter. They'd been gossiping about him. You know they were. At the end of this story, they are talking about his family in much different ways. They're talking about the faithfulness of God. At the end, people were filled with awe and talking about these things. His public disgrace turned into public redemption because, friends... You know this, God's faithfulness is always greater than our failures. Aren't we thankful for that? Did you know that sometimes good people, even clergy, have doubts about God's promises? Did you know that sometimes leaders are very afraid and fail because of that? Did you know that sometimes people with very prominent last names... ...who have important positions in the community make very public mistakes. It happens. And when that happens, we are tempted to focus on our embarrassments and failures. We are tempted to focus on our moral and ethical failures, on our failure of courage, on our failure in our marriage, in our family, in our relationships. We are tempted to focus on those failures and relive and rethink and sit in those over and over and over again. John Calvin once wrote that it was a great relief to Zechariah to know that the faithfulness of God is not made of no account by his shortcoming, but indeed falls out all the greater at last. It happens sometimes that the Lord offers and fulfills what he has promised in spite of our resistance. So when you have failures, you should repent. And you should make amends where it's appropriate. And then you should put your hope in the faithfulness of God that is greater than any failure you might have made. Several weeks ago when we were talking about the story of Peter, I showed you a church that's named after him. And the design of the church points out both his faithfulness and his failure. There's a rooster at the top. But there's other parts of the church that are testaments to his great faithfulness. Well, there's another church in Jerusalem called the Church of St. John the Baptist. And it's on the site where some think he was born. Uh, was built at different periods during history and then excavated. Inside the Church of St. John the Baptist, there's an archway with an inscription on it. And the inscription says this, Benedictus Dominus Deus Israel. It's Latin, for blessed be the God of Israel. You know where those words come from? They are the first words of Zechariah's prayer that are recorded in the Gospel of Luke. We are probably most familiar with Mary's prayer, some call the Magnificat, after the first words of that prayer. After that is recorded Zechariah's prayer. And it's a very eloquent prayer. He praises God for his faithfulness and his mercy and his salvation. He is thankful that he can serve God without fear. Zechariah, in the end, he's a wise, faithful man of prayer. And his failure in that moment, unfortunately, is what's recorded in Scripture. But it was a blip on the radar of his life. Here's a man who has spent time devoted to God who knows the faithfulness and mercy of God and if nothing else he's had nine months of silent reflection on the faithfulness of God and so at the birth of his son he pens a song talking about the faithfulness of God this song has been translated and arranged and sung throughout Christian history that is a part of Zechariah's legacy as well So I want to leave you with the final words of his prayer that are recorded in Scripture. He says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. You tell me what won out in the end. Was it Zacharias' failure Or was it God's faithfulness? And so, as we process our many failures, and they are many, aren't they? As we process those failures, may we rest in the faithfulness of God, which is always greater than any of our failures. Let's be standing.